This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. Okay, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you again for the opportunity to worship the opportunity is the body of Christ to come together and sing praises to you, Lord. We just pray you are honored and glorified by the things that we've already done. And we pray, Lord, you would continue to be with us as we open up the word of Scripture, the truth, Father, the absolute truth that we dedicate our lives to. Father, pray you'd give us clarity of thought as we think through and understand. And then I pray, Lord, we leave here transformed, changed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning, if I could, by reading a passage from... The book of Acts. Now, you don't have to open with me. You can just listen. I think we actually have it on the screen, but I want to tell you why I'm reading it. Acts chapter 13, we studied over the summer, is Paul's first missionary journey. We've already looked at that last summer. And in Acts chapter 13, this is a sermon that Paul preached, and it's such a good place for us to begin this morning because it's going to give us a summary of kind of where we've already been in our sermon series the last few weeks. And it's going to give us a picture of where we're going to go today and for the next couple of weeks. So Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse 17, says this. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. And with mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Now, that's important for us today. Then the people asked for a king. He gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. This is very important for us today. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, verse 23, here's the tie-in to the great story. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now this is a very interesting passage of scripture because it gives us, first of all, a glimpse into God's faithfulness. Into the faithfulness of God from the beginning with the children of Israel through the time of captivity in Egypt, into the desert, eventually into the promised land. But it also gives us a glimpse of the king named David. And this king is going to be very important for us because it's through this king that the royal line will eventually lead to Christ. Now that's important for us in our study of the great story. This is week 8. And we began this sermon series several weeks ago talking about the fact that God has a plan from the beginning. We started in Genesis chapter 1. We moved through Genesis chapter 3. And through the last several weeks we've examined in the Old Testament God's plan ultimately to save his people through Jesus Christ. And so we've taken a look up to this point at, at all these different examples of Christ in the Old Testament. And we've seen all these events. We've, we've, we've looked at the event in Genesis chapter 3 of the fall and sin entering the world. We looked at the event of the Passover in the book of Exodus. We looked at the event last week, Numbers chapter 21, of the serpent being lifted up on the staff. We've seen different events that point to Christ, but we have not yet studied a person. We haven't studied a person yet that looks ahead to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, for the first time, we're going to take a look at a type of Christ. 
You say, what, what do you mean by the phrase a type of Christ? Well, let me, let me explain to you what we mean when we say a type of Christ. I want to read how one author describes it. When we say that someone is a type of Christ, we're saying that a person in the Old Testament behaves in a way that corresponds to Jesus' character or actions in the New Testament. So a type of Christ is a person that lived in the Old Testament that foreshadows or looks ahead in some way and reminds us of Christ in the New Testament. Now we need to be careful when we begin to talk about a type of Christ because no one is exactly like Jesus. We understand that. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was also fully man. Jesus was without sin. Jesus and Jesus alone was the only man who could willingly walk to Calvary, give himself to be crucified and die on the cross for our sins. So there's no one exactly like Jesus. But we understand that there are certain people in the Bible that are recognized as types of Christ and people that we can look to to show us exactly who Christ was going to be. We're going to study David this morning. He's a type of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now let me just catch us up from where we've been the last couple of weeks. Last Sunday, we studied in Numbers chapter 21. We studied the picture of the serpent lifted up on the staff. And I'll have to tell you, for me last week, that study was maybe the most interesting study I've done in a long time because I've heard that story over and over. But I've never delved into it like we did last week. So Numbers chapter 21, for me personally, was fascinating. But we saw the serpent lifted up on the staff. Now let me catch you up from what happened last week in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, the serpent is lifted up on the staff. The children of Israel wander around the desert for a period of time. Eventually, Joshua is going to come to lead the people of Israel. Moses is going to die. Joshua takes over. He continues to lead the people of Israel into the wilderness and eventually across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now here's the problem that we notice and we encounter once the children of Israel enter the Promised Land. All the grumbling and the complaining and the sinfulness of the desert is carried over into the promised land. It's not as if they cross the Jordan River and everything's fine. They continue to rebel. They continue to sin. They continue to do things that don't please God. And we we could summarize kind of who the children of Israel were in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. Here's what it says. In those days, Israel had no king. That's important. And everyone did as he saw fit. Now, the King James says it like this, and this is the one I remember. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So here's where we're left off with the children of Israel. They've crossed the Jordan River. They're in the promised land, the same land that God had promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. They finally made it to the promised land, and they're continuing to rebel. So here's what the people of Israel do. They begin to look around, and they begin to notice that other countries have kings. And they begin to think to themselves, hmm... If we only had a king, then everything would be good for us. And so, Lord, they say, we need a king. We want you to send us a king to rule us and to guide us and to lead us. And God says to the people of Israel, you're not ready for a king. But God, you don't understand. We we, we really need a king. We need somebody who can come and help us think through and guide us and direct us. And God says, you really don't need a king. And the people of Israel continue to beg. They continue to ask. And eventually God answers their prayers and he sends them King Saul. Now, Saul is the first king of Israel, but the problem with Saul is Saul isn't a godly man. Saul is not leading the people of Israel towards the things of God. Saul doesn't care about the things of God. And so as we get towards the end of Saul's life, God is going to call someone else to be king. Enter David. Now, if you were going to draw a line from Adam and Eve to Abraham, and from Abraham to Jesus Christ, along that line, David would be right in the middle. 
In fact, if you were to read the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, here's what you'd read. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see, we trace a direct line from Adam and Eve to Abraham, from Abraham to David, and from David to Jesus Christ. So David stands in the line of kings that will eventually lead to Christ. Now here's the interesting thing about David, and I pointed this out to our students in the 930 service. David, at the time we're going to read here in 1 Samuel chapter chapter 16, was probably somewhere between the ages of 10 and 17. We don't know exactly how old he was. There's some debate about how old he was, but most scholars say he was somewhere between the ages of 10 and 17. Now, it's interesting to me, I I told our students in the 930 service, because sometimes we think as we're younger and we see students talking this way, that they don't really think that God's going to do anything with their lives until they're a little bit older, right? i got to wait till I'm adult and I go through college and then I'm going to get a degree and then get a job and then God can use me. That's not what the scripture teaches. David was used of God as a young teenager. And so I'll challenge anybody in here that's younger, students, children, don't ever think God can't use you because you're young because God's got a plan for your life even now. You need to understand that. God's got a plan for your life even now. He desires to use you in mighty and powerful ways, whatever that may look like for you. So we're going to study this morning the anointing of King David as king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Let's read it together. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, now Samuel was a prophet, this is important. Samuel is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Okay, if you were to follow the progression, Genesis, we studied Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers last week, Deuteronomy, Joshua leads the people of Israel across the Jordan River. Deuteronomy, Joshua, judges the judges, Ruth, Now here we are in 1 Samuel. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, he's the current king, since I have rejected him as the king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Now this is how the prophets would anoint the kings. They would fill up their horn with oil. They would eventually pour the oil and anoint the head of the person that was going to be called king. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Now, verses 2 through 5, Samuel has a little bit of a discussion with God. God says, you need to go, offer a sacrifice, tell Jesse to come with you, bring his sons. They can sacrifice with you. And we pick up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I want to point out three things to you this morning that we find in David. Three things that we understand about his character. Three things that we see in God using him in mighty and powerful ways. And the first thing I want you to understand about David is, number one, he had a heart for God. David, number one, had a heart for God. Now we ask ourselves the question, how do we pick a king? And we're not familiar with kings in our current culture in America. We don't understand how we choose them. We don't really understand how they rule or how they reign. But for centuries, kings have been important. And so we begin to ask ourselves the question, how do we choose kings? How have kings been chosen down through the centuries? Well, if we study history, we see there are a couple of different ways that kings have been chosen. One of the ways that kings have been chosen is through the family. If your dad was a king... And he had a firstborn son, that firstborn son would become a king. If there wasn't a firstborn king, they would usually try to, try to find the first male heir. And you begin to see in history that in one of those discussions, if there wasn't a firstborn son or there wasn't a male heir, they begin to have conflict. 
And oftentimes there would be war. And so we see oftentimes the strongest king or the most powerful person would become king. But we would see these people down through history and we would see their outward appearance. We would see their strength or their family line or their ability. And we see those were the reasons that people were chosen as king. That's exactly what Samuel thinks. Samuel shows up at Jesse's house. He sees his son Eliab and he thinks, wow, this guy's pretty strong. He's tall. He looks like he plays the part. He seems very wise. Surely, Lord, this is the guy you're going to choose. But I love God's response in verse 7. He says to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, we've all heard the phrase, you don't judge a book by its cover, right? You ever heard that phrase? So I'm in the bookstore this week, and I'm looking at books. I'm, I'm thinking, I want to pick a book and read something different. And so I'm, you know, you're in a bookstore, and you have to walk down the aisle like this, you know, because all the books are sideways. So I'm walking down the bookstore, and I'm looking at different names of books. And you know exactly what I'm doing. I'm doing what you do when you go to the bookstore. I'm judging the books by their covers. That's how we do it. That's how we have to do it, right? I mean, I don't have time to read every single book. I don't have time to take every single book off the shelf and look. So here's what I'm doing. I'm looking at a book, and I'm looking at the title first. Is the title catchy? Sound like a good title? Title's decent. If the title looks decent, I may pull it off the shelf, and I'll look at the front of it. That's what I'm doing. I'm looking at the cover of the book. Does it look interesting? Is, it, is, it, is the graphic art decent on there? Is it something that looks interesting to me? Maybe I'll turn over the back and read a little blurb. And if I like all those things, kind of check off the list, then I'll open the book and I'll read the first couple of pages and maybe introduction. See, I'm judging the book by its cover. And we say, oh, well, we, should, we should never judge a book by its cover, right? We, we do that. We do that when we're looking at books. We do that when we're looking at people, don't we? Now, you can say, oh, no, Adam, I don't, I don't judge, a, I don't, I don't judge a, a book by its cover. I don't, I don't look at a person. That, we've all done that. We've all done that in our lives. We look at somebody and we think, you know what, that person is really successful. I bet God's really going to use them. Or that person's really intelligent. I bet God could, could really use that person. Or that person's really got it going on in this part of their life. I, I bet you God could use that person. And, and this is what we do. We, we flip it around and we look at ourselves and we say something like this. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough for God to use me. I don't know if I'm successful enough for God to use me. I don't know if I have the right look for God to use me. I'm I'm never quite good enough. I don't think that God's going to use me in any powerful way. But here's what we need to understand from this passage of Scripture. God's not making decisions based on how you look. God's making decisions based on your heart. I think that should be very comforting to us. Because we can never match up to the things we want to do and always appear the way we want to appear and always become the things we want to become. But God looks at our hearts. And he views us based on the decisions we make in our hearts. Now this is interesting because if you were to study through Scripture, if you were to do a word study on the word heart, you'd see it over and over and over and over again in the importance of the heart. And you would arrive at passages like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of the God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, that God's concerned about your heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of of life. See, here, here's the thing about David that God understood. David had a heart for the things of God. Acts 13, 22, looking back on the anointing of David and on his kingship and on his life, said this, After removing Saul, he made David their king. 
He testifies concerning him. This is God speaking now. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. I wonder how many times we've asked ourselves the question or wondered in our minds or thought to ourselves, I sure would like to be called a man after God's own heart. Men, wouldn't you like to be called a man after God's own heart? Wouldn't you like people to see the way that you lead your family, the way that you spend time with God or the things of Christ in your life and say, this is a man after God's own heart? And so I started thinking, I wonder what being a man after God's own heart looks like. I mean, what sort of qualifications would we put in place here? I mean, what would that list look like? This guy's a man after God's own heart. What are the qualifications or what are the lists of things or, or what should we see in this person's life that shows that this is a man after God's own heart? So I said, okay, well, let's, let's examine David, right? I mean, he was a man after God's own heart. What sort of things do we see in David's life? And I started thinking about all that I know about David. And I thought about his strength and I thought about his compassion and I thought about his courage and I thought about his love. But as I begin to think more about David and, and read a little bit more about David, there are two things that, that came to mind. There are two things I think that show in David's mind and show in David's life that show and help us understand how he had a heart for the things of God. Number one, he recognized God's glory. We see that in all his writings. So you may not know this about David, but David wrote a good portion of the book of Psalms. So there are numerous Psalms that are written by David. As you begin to read those Psalms, one of the things you notice about David is he recognized God's glory. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. David understood and recognized the glory of God. But here's something else David did. And this is what I think is kind of the essence. I think this is the core here of understanding kind of who David was and how God worked in his life. David recognized God's grace and forgiveness in his own life. God recognized David's grace and forgiveness in his own life. See, here's the thing we have to understand about David. You may or may not know the story of David, but David was ultimately a very sinful man. David did a lot of things he shouldn't have done. He made a lot of mistakes he shouldn't have made. It led him down a path that it shouldn't have led him down. And it it, it really brings comfort to my heart to understand that David was a man who made terrible mistakes, but the Bible still says that he was a man after God's own heart. And so I think about David's idea of grace and forgiveness, and I read Psalm 51 written by David, looking back upon his life, and here's what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are provoked rightly when you speak and justified when you judge. David understood that he had made mistakes. But here's what he understood about God. God was graceful. And God loved him. And and I just think about us, and I think about our context, and I think about the lives that we lead, and I think, you know what? There are so many instances in our lives, and you could all probably name things, I could name things. There's so many areas in our lives in the past where we say, you know what? I just dropped the ball. I blew it. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. I feel terrible about it now. You know, I, I, I can't believe I did this, or acted this way, or said this, or thought this, or you fill in the blank. We've all got them. But here's the thing that David understood. God is graceful. And no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter the mistakes that you've made, God forgives you and he offers you grace. That's understanding the heart of God. That's who David was. That's how David lived his life. We know the mistakes that David made. We know all the things that he did wrong. And we know where he had been and what he had done. And yet God offers him grace. God offers him forgiveness. David had a heart for the things of God. Let's continue to to move on to this passage as we move down to verse 8 of 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see this. 
Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chose this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, let's just, let's get the picture here, okay? Samuel is in Jesse's house. God has called him to anoint the king. He's looked now at Jesse's sons. He's seen all of his sons as far as he knows. And every time a son passes in front of Jesse, God passes in front of Samuel, God says to Samuel, this is not the one. This is not the one you're to anoint. This is not the one that's to become king. Now, verse 11. So he, this is Samuel, asked Jesse, are these all of your sons? Is this it, right? I mean, I've seen them all. God's called me to do something here. I've seen every one of them. And every time God says it's not this one, are these all your sons? And now here's Jesse's answer. There's still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Now, just imagine Jesse's response here. Samuel says, you know, I've seen your sons. God hasn't led me to anoint any of these sons yet. Is this all you got? Is there another son? I can just, I can just see and, and kind of sense Jesse's response. And Jesse says something like this. Well, you know, there's, there's the young one. But Samuel, I just, I, you know, I just don't know if you want to see him. He's out tending sheep. He's young. We haven't seen a whole lot of, we haven't seen a whole lot of promise in him. We, you know, I, I just don't know. I just don't know if you want to see him. Now look at what Samuel says. Samuel says, send for him. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. Samuel said, I've looked at all the others. God sent me here for a purpose. I trust God. God is going to show me who the king is supposed to be. You need to bring the other son. So verse 12. So he sinned and he had him brought in. And he was ruddy, which means he had some sort of a red complexion. Maybe his hair. We don't know. With a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So here's what we see so far in David. We see that David has got a heart for God. Number one, that's very important. But number two in this passage of Scripture, we see that David had a calling from God. See that? David had a heart for God, but David also had a calling from God. Now, God has got a plan here, right? God's had a plan from the beginning. God called Adam and Eve. God called Abraham. We kind of of followed that progression. And God's great story, God's great plan didn't begin with David. And so Samuel shows up, and he understands that God's got a plan. He understands the promises he made to Abraham. He understands the promise of Isaac and Jacob and on down the line. He understands the Passover. He understands all that God has done. And he understands that this blessing and this calling is going to be placed now on one of these sons to become the king. And yet son after son walked by and God said, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. Until Samuel finally says, is there another? And Jesse brings this young boy in. And I want to read you another account. Psalm 78, if you're making notes in your Bible in 1 Samuel 17, out to the side, you ought to write set, Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. Because in Psalm 78, we get another picture of this anointing. When Psalm 78 was written, it's another account of this calling in 1 Samuel 16 when David was anointed. I want you to listen to the account in Psalm 78 of this same story. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens... Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to emphasize something here. Took him from the sheep pens, from tending the sheep. He brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. It's interesting that when we read this account in Psalm 78 of David being anointed as king, it magnifies this idea of David being a shepherd over his sheep, bringing him to the point of being the king and the shepherd over all of Israel. 
Now, it's neat because if you begin to study through Scripture, you see that the shepherds and the sheep are an analogy that God uses over and over. Maybe the most familiar of all the Psalms, Psalm 23. We've seen it, we've heard it, we've read it. I want to read it to you again, but I want you to listen to it and understand it's written from the context of the shepherd to the sheep, right? Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my, you know what it is, what is it? Shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture. See, we're the sheep, he's our shepherd. He leads me, there it is again, beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see the picture of the shepherd leading and tending to the sheep, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Here's the shepherd again. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now here's the anointing of the king. You anoint my head with oil. Remember what was going to happen to David? My cup overflows Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a picture of God as our shepherd and his love and compassion for us. But here's the interesting thing about shepherds in Scripture. Here's the interesting thing about God calling David from the sheep field as the shepherd to be the shepherd of Israel. The interesting thing is that shepherds in this context weren't looked upon very highly in society. It's not as if we heard that David was a shepherd and we said, oh, yes. The shepherd, he'll become the king. Instead, Jesse says, well, he's the young son and he's out tending sheep. You you really don't want him, Samuel. (laughs) He's just a shepherd boy, right? I mean, the shepherds in those times lived in isolation. They were poor, they were uneducated, they were uncultured. If we want to kind of sum up a shepherd in biblical times, they're the lowest of the low. But you'll remember the incredible story when God sends his son Jesus Christ to earth And he makes the proclamation from the angels that Christ has arisen. Excuse me, that Christ has arrived. He does it in Luke chapter 2, 11. Who's he tell first? You remember? Shepherds. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, shepherd boy. He is Christ the Lord. You say, that's interesting, Adam. What does that have to do with me right now, right? And we're talking about shepherds in the... Centuries before the birth of Christ, you're telling me shepherds were lowly, you're telling me they were looked down upon, they were forgotten, they were unloved, they weren't good enough. What does that have to do with me? I'll tell you what it has to do with you. Because every one of us has woken up at some point in our life and we felt unloved. Everyone has felt inadequate, haven't we? At some point in our life we've experienced this this problem of, of feeling like we're not good enough or we can't accomplish enough or we're too lowly or God can't use me or God's not gonna do anything in my life. But I want you to understand something very clearly. God makes a habit of calling people that are lowly all through the Bible to do incredible things for him. He used Gideon, who was the lowest of the low by his own estimation. He was the weakest member of the weakest clan. Saul was a weak member of a very weak clan in Israel. David was the youngest. He was just a simple shepherd boy. Jesus targeted over and over and over the weak and the downtrodden. He called uneducated fishermen his disciples. He called tax collectors and sinners to be his friends. He hung out with these people that nobody liked, with the the least of the least and the lowest of the low. And we see this pattern in Scripture of God taking these people that don't think they could do anything, that are looked down upon by society and using them in incredible ways. But here's the problem we have now. Here's where it meets the road. The rubber meets the road for us. You ready? I really believe that a lot of us miss God's calling in our lives because we don't think we're good enough to do it. We miss everything God has in store for us because we say this to God. Seriously, God, I can't do that. (laughs) No way, Lord. 
I can't, I can't go overseas and witness. I can't do that, Lord. I can't share with my coworker. What am I going to say? I don't have the right answer. I mean, I've sinned. He knows my sin. I can't share with him. Lord, I'm not good enough. Or, Lord, I don't know the Bible well enough to talk about Christ or to live my life in a certain way to lead my family. I don't know anything about the Bible. And we buy into this lie that we got to be somebody in the eyes of the world to do something for God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says if you've got a heart for God, if you'll recognize his calling in your life, and by the way, we've all got a calling in life, if you'll recognize that calling in your life, he's going to do incredible things through you. He took David who was a young shepherd boy and made him the king of Israel. I love this quote. I know some of you have heard it before, but it says this, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. That's true. If you think God can never use you, you're right where you ought to be. (laughs) Because he can do incredible things through you if you'll let him. Now look at verse 13 as we move on. David had a heart for God. David recognized the calling of God. And now look at verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. If you're making notes, you ought to underline that sentence. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Then Samuel, who was done, went on to Ramah. So we see that David has got a heart for God. We see that David recognized the calling of God. And then thirdly, we see now that David has the Spirit of God. David has got the Spirit of God. The Bible says the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now here's what this means for you. Here's what this means for you. When God calls you to do something for Him, He's going to give you the power to accomplish it. Do you understand that? When God calls you to do something, He's going to give you the power to accomplish it. Now we look at the context of this scripture and, and in the Old Testament, and we realize that at this point, the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen upon believers. That doesn't happen until Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. We remember the story. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls upon the believers. And in the New Testament, in the world we live in now, in our context, the Holy Spirit comes upon all believers. But in the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. The Holy Spirit wasn't upon all the believers. And there were only certain people that were called and used through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we see in this context, David, the young shepherd boy, The little boy that his dad thought was not good enough to even bring into the mix with all of his other brothers. The young boy who was in the field in a position that most people looked down upon. David was taken and made king of Israel. And history tells us that he was Israel's greatest king. He reigned for 40 years and all the kings of Israel compared themselves to him. If you wanted to summarize David's life, 2 Samuel 5.10 says this. And he became more and more powerful. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty was with him. I just wonder in our world, in our context, if the Christians of our world, if the believers of our world would set their hearts upon the things of God, would recognize the calling of God in their life, whatever that may be, and would realize the power they have to accomplish all the things God has called them to accomplish. I just wonder what our world would look look like. I just wonder how the world would change. I just wonder how we, we could do incredible things for Christ by just moving in the direction he's called us to move. By just doing the things he's called us to do. By just taking the power of the Holy Spirit and applying it to our lives and doing things that are incredible. Things we could never even imagine. Because as we study this context, we understand David is looking ahead to Christ. We understand that through the power of God working in our lives, we're going to accomplish everything he's called us to accomplish. 
David is a great picture for us of the, of the lineage of Jesus Christ as that line runs from Adam to Abraham to David, eventually to Christ. And it's a picture of how God can use a humble nobody to do incredible things for him. David had a heart for God. He had a calling upon his life. And he saw and understood the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. Because of that, God did incredible things in his life. Here's the question I want you to answer this morning as you leave. Here's the question I want you to consider this week in your life. How much could you accomplish if you just allowed God to work in your heart? Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your text of Scripture that is clear. Lord, we thank you for the message that you've shown us, Father, in this passage of Scripture. And and we thank you, Lord, that you've helped us maybe to better understand exactly what you want to do in our life, Lord. We just recognize sometimes that we don't see... We don't see our lives the way that you see our lives, Father. And we think we, we can't accomplish anything for you. We can't do anything for you, Lord. We're not good enough or smart enough or whatever. But, Lord, we understand if we'll set our sights on you, if we'll set our hearts on you, Lord, if we'll recognize your calling in our lives, whatever that may be, Lord, that you're going to give us the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it, whatever it is. And we're going to praise your name in all things. It's in Jesus' precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you a couple of minutes if you want to come and pray. Maybe you want to pray about God's calling in your life or, or, or what he's doing in your heart. Maybe you want to turn from your sins and repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you want to join this church. But this is your time right now as we sing together. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.